May it please the court. Um, good morning, my name is Michael McLaughlin. I'm, I'm an attorney from the State Public Defender's Office, and I'm here representing um, the appellant James Alger on this case. Uh, this appeal concerns whether Mr. Alger may receive multiple sentences under the multiple, multiple victim rule for violating an order for protection by going to a location where two protected parties were present. Now, Rule 609035 generally limits uh, one sentence um, for crimes committed during a single behavioral incident. So under 609035, um, two OFP violations committed through a single act would generally be prohibited. But the Court of Appeals held in this case that these multiple sentences were permissible under the multiple victim rule. The multiple victim rule provides that um, even if multiple sentences would be otherwise prohibited under 609035, they are permitted if, um, if two requirements are met. Um, first, that the felonies were, um, were inflicted against separate individuals. And second, that the multiple sentences would not unfairly exaggerate criminality. Um, here, this court should conclude that the multiple OFP violations in this case do not support multiple sentences under the multiple victim rule. Um, in Ferguson, this court addressed that first requirement of the multiple victim rule, whether the offense is one in, that, that is inflicted against multiple individuals. In Ferguson, um, this court established that the test is determined by the elements of the, the offense, not the defendant's conduct. And looking at the elements, um, this court determined in Ferguson whether or not the offense was one such that the commission of the offense necessarily results in offense victims. Um, and the requirements that must be met in those elements under the Ferguson analysis is that the, the elements of the offense either cause victim harm or involve an intent to cause victim harm. Um, if either of these elements is in the crime, the crime can qualify as an offense committed against victims, as, as a as an offense that necessarily produces offense victims. But if the elements do not contain these requirements, um, the offense is not one inflicted against separate victims and is not eligible for multiple sentences under the multiple victim rule. Counsel, didn't Ferguson explicitly reject the intent to harm argument? Uh, I read footnote two in that case as, as explicitly rejecting that. Could you clarify what you mean by the intent to harm requirement? Well, that, Your Honor? well I, I thought your argument is that um, the multiple victim rule only applies if the elements show either an intent to harm a victim or actual harm to the victim. Am I wrong about your argument? Well, that's correct. One okay. of those requirements. Yeah, and the way I read the footnote in Ferguson is that it re it rejected that in that intent to harm argument. It, it cited the Gartland case, and there the defendant didn't mean to hurt anybody, and it said that really didn't make a difference. Well, I, I think what, at least our analysis of Ferguson is that it requires one or the other. So in the Gartland case, there was not intent to harm. It was an, it was an unintentional crime, um, but there was, as an element, there was uh, the, the defendant caused harm to victims. It was a um, believe it was a vehicular um, homicide case. Um, so there, there, there was not the intent, but there was the actual harm to victims. Our reading of Ferguson is that you need one or the other. You need intent or you need actual harm. Um, and, and the reason that the drive-by shooting at an occupied building didn't qualify um, as, as a, an offense committed against separate victims is that there, there, neither element was present in that case. The, the court noted that for violating uh, or for committing a drive-by shooting in an occupied building, the defendant doesn't even even doesn't need to know that the building is occupied. That that the knowledge is essentially irrelevant. Intent is irrelevant, and also noted that the the crime can be committed even if someone is not actually harmed by the defendant's conduct of shooting at the building. Um, so, because in Ferguson, both of those aspects were lacking the intent and uh, the harm, uh, this court concluded that it was it did not qualify. Uh, for um, multiple sentences under the, the multiple victim rule. And we're asking the court to, to follow that analysis here and apply the same analysis to an OFP violation. Uh, OFP violation has the elements of that there has to be a valid order issued um, by 
by a court or judicial authority. Um, the defendant has to have knowledge of that order and the defendant has to violate that order. There's no element concerning um, any harm to the protected party. There's no element that the defendant has to act with any type of intent towards the protected party, um, only that the defendant knows of the order and violates it. Uh, Counsel, can I just, on this issue of whether or not um, anybody was harmed, if, if we just think about the idea of an order for protection, I mean, the whole point of an order for protection is to protect the person that is the subject of the order, right? I mean, I mean that's why a, a, a person goes to court to get an OFP because they're afraid. Yes. So if the OFP is violated, I mean, by definition, isn't someone harmed by it? The person who sought protection. We, we fully agree that OFPs serve a protective purpose, that they arise out of a prior incident of domestic violence and, and that a person was, whenever there's an OFP, that court has found that a person was, was previously victimized by domestic violence. But the OFP itself functions as a, a, pre, a prophylactic um, criminal statute. It's, it's a preventative law designed to avoid situations that are likely to pose heightened risks of, of further domestic violence. Uh, and in this way, it's, it's in some ways similar to the um, drive-by shooting at an occupied building law. That, that law, it, it, that conduct is prohibited because shooting at an occupied building is inherently dangerous. It's something that, it, it's, it's a, a circumstance that the law um, prohibits because it's, it's especially likely to cause harm. But it, it, at the same time, that crime is, it does not require actual harm to a victim. And it, in some ways, an OFP is analogous to that in that it's, it's a prophylactic, pro, prophylactic law. It, it tries to prevent situations that lead to further domestic violence, but the commission of the OFP violation itself does not require any harm to a victim. It does not necessarily involve revictimization. Um, and, and, the, and, and looking at that, I mean, there are, you know, the OFP statute recognizes that it's not necessary for the victim to be aware that the defendant violated the OFP, that the defendant can violate the OFP even if the victim consents to the contact, if the victim initiates the contact, that's still an OFP violation. So the, the legislature and the OFP state Certainly could be instances where the violation does result in further harm. So under your analysis, would the district court have to even dig further into what was the violation so that if there actually was harm, what, do, what happens with your analysis then? Our, our analysis would be that the district court should do that in appropriate cases when there is an OFP violation that is more culpable because of, of a harm to, um, to a victim. The court can conduct that analysis, but it should occur. That's like the Myers, Myers case, right? Where there was a obstruction of justice and the court looked beyond it. The obstruction of justice was the guy actually fought with a police officer. And so the court said obstruction of justice may or may not be a victim crime but you can look under and if, if the actual acts that go on in the case, you know, so if there's a violation of an OFP here and someone goes and actually hits the woman again, then that would, argue, that would be a, a violation. But you have to, you can look at the conduct, but it, your argument here is that that conduct didn't happen. I mean, isn't our, Myers kind of on point? Well, our argument is that Ferguson rejected that aspect of Myers analysis, that under Ferguson, the court doesn't look at the conduct, it looks at the elements for determining the threshold question of whether an offense is one committed against multiple victims. Um, so we would ask that this court find that the multiple victim rule does not apply to OFP violations because the elements do not establish that it's an a victim offense. But the, the type of analysis that Justice McKegg was referring to and that, um, that you're referring to, the, we'd ask that that occur in terms of um, whether the sentence supports an upward departure um, or if, um, if multiple sentences can be imposed for an OFP and any independent crimes committed during commission of the OFP. So there are other, there are other tools available to a court to enhance a sentence um, to make it commensurate with culpability when a defendant commits an OFP violation in a, um, in a more serious manner. But under Ferguson, the multiple victim rule is not the the, the, the sentencing tool that's used to ratchet up the sentence in that scenario um, because it's the crime itself, the offense does not, in its elements, 
result in offense victims. Um, and, it, and this sort of addresses um, Justice McKay's question, but I, it's important to not view a rejection of the multiple victim rule in, as applied to an OFP as somehow limiting um, a, a district court's ability to appropriately punish violators of OFPs um, and, and not to somehow minimize the seriousness of the conduct. Um, but it, our position is that the multiple victim rule is just the, it's the wrong means to accomplish that end. Um, and we note that every time this court has ever applied the multiple victim rule, it's involved a case where the crime inherently results in more culpable conduct by the defendant when it's committed against more than one person. Counsel, in this case, do we have zero victims, one victim, or two victims? We don't, it's our position that we have zero victims. Um, that if, now if- hey, Why isn't the mother of the child a victim here by, by the violation of the OFP? I mean, she, the, the record indicates that she got the OFP because she'd been abused. So isn't showing up um, enough to make her a victim, your client showing up and violating the OFP? I mean, we fully acknowledge in a colloquial sense um, the protected party has been a victim of domestic violence. Um, but following Ferguson, the court's analysis under the multiple victim rule really must depend on the, the offense itself. So it's our position that the, the OFP offense committed by Mr. Alger did not make anyone a, an offense victim. So the elements of the crime he committed by violating the OFP didn't necessarily create any victims for that offense. But we don't, we don't mean to minimize um, the harm caused you know, by, by domestic violence and that in, a, you know, in an ordinary language sense that the, the protected party is a victim of domestic violence. But for multiple victim rule, um, need to look at the specific offense and whether that offense creates victims. And it's our position that the elements do not establish that in a way. Well, let's say, let's say that he had shown up at the hotel room and then hit her. Would she be a victim of the violation of the OFP? She'd be a victim of an assault. And, and, and that wasn't my question. Okay. Would she a victim of the violation of the OFP? No, she, under Ferguson analysis, she would not be a victim of the violation of the OFP. So your, your position is when there's a violation of an OFP, there can never be a victim under Ferguson. It's our position that the multiple victim rule is not appropriate for a violation of an OFP. That, but, that wasn't my question, counsel. My question was, is it your position that there can never be a victim when there's a violation of an OFP, for a victim of the violation? It's our position, yes, it's our position that there cannot be a victim of the violation, but there can be a victim of any offenses committed against a person during that violation. There's and, not and, a victim for purposes of the victim of the multiple victim rule right. for sentencing. Right. That's because that's really what we're talking about. We're not talking about whether there's a victim in general, but whether there's a victim for the multiple victim rule. Yes. And under Ferguson, your argument is that you have to meet either one of those two points, intent to harm or actual harm as part of the crime to fit into the multiple victim rule. That's correct, yes. Yeah. And if if the defendant does anything beyond an OFP violation to cause, um, the, if he hits someone, for instance, to, the court would, would then have two tools to increase the sentence based on that more culpable act, either imposing multiple consecutive sentences for the OFP and the separate assault, or- um, Which is Ferguson. Which is Ferguson, and also Hodges, which did it for a burglary, um, or, or said it could be done for a burglary. Um, and, or, or the court could, uh, in, uh, in, uh, order an aggravated or impose an um, aggravated sentence for just for the OFP violation based on the, the fact that the commission of the OFP caused, the conduct caused additional harm to the protected party. Um, so, so we, we, so those means are still available to court, but, um, but the, the, the multiple victim rule under Ferguson isn't the appropriate means to ratchet it up and, and increase the sentence um, in, that, in that scenario. Uh, the, in, in looking at this court's cases dealing with multiple victim rule, you know, going back to Stanvik um, and, and really throughout the case law, uh, whenever the court has applied the multiple victim rule and found it appropriate, 
it's involved a crime that causes either causes harm to a person or the defendant intends to cause harm to a person. Um, and sort of the, the classic scenario is a, a violent crime committed against a person, uh, an assault or a homicide, um, where there's no question in that case that a defendant who commits two assaults or two homicides against against different people is, is more culpable than someone who commits just one offense during a single incident. So when the courts apply the multiple victim rule, it's, it's always been well grounded in proportionality because the defendant's um, crimes committed against multiple individuals necessarily increases culpability. Um, but, but where that's been absent, where there hasn't been um, anything in the crime itself that makes it more culpable when, when multiple people are involved, this court has consistently rejected the multiple victim rule. Um, it did so in, in Hodges involving burglary, um, which it characterizes a property offense. Um, it did it in, um, in, in Whipper with arson um, and, and skipping the day with accomplice after the fact, and, and then finally in Ferguson with the prophylactic crime of um, shooting at an occupied building. So the, the court's always been concerned about making sure the multiple victim rule serves its purpose, which is to make the sentence proportionate to the, um, to the defendant's crime. Um, and we'd ask that the court do the same here and conclude that uh, although an OFP uh, when committed in a more culpable way, does support a longer sentence that a district court should use different tools than multiple victim rule to accomplish that assault, that, that result. And that under Ferguson, the multiple victim rule is not the, is not the means a court should use to um, increase a defendant's sentence. Counsel, how do you respond to the Court of Appeals observation about the effect of State versus Jones, one of our decisions from 2014? The, the Court of Appeals said in Jones, um, a defendant was convicted of both violating an OFP and stalking. That's a single behavioral incident. If OFP were simply a violation of uh, the administration of justice or an offense against the court, then there could have been two sentences, not a single behavioral incident. Um, how do you respond to that? Um, well, first, that it's... It, it, it didn't... It, I know the, the Court of Appeals looked at Jones to show that it, it was, it, it supported um, a view that under Ferguson, that the Ferguson um, rule of that you take the number of victims plus the one non-victim offense is how you get to the total number of, of sentences. Um, and that the, um, because of the fact that Jones only imposed one sentence, it was a, it suggested that it, that Ferguson rule does not apply to an OFP violation. Um, an important difference with Jones and Ferguson is that Jones only involved one victim. Um, so Ferguson's entire analysis was about how sentences should be imposed when there's more than one victim present. In Jones, there was only there's only one victim, um, single individual, and the defendant committed the OFP and also a stalking offense. Yeah, but isn't that the point? I, the Court of Appeals is observing that if OFP is not a, a victim crime, then there's, there could have been two convictions, two sentences. How, how do you respond to that? Well, the, I mean, the issue wasn't, wasn't litigated in Jones um, regarding that. And, um, and the court in Jones didn't, didn't consider the, or there's no evidence in the opinion that there was any consideration of this aspect of Ferguson in Jones. So, um, so the issue wasn't squarely confronted in Jones. Wasn't squarely confronted in Jones, and it, and it's and it and it, Ferguson. I mean, Ferguson's holding at this stage is limited to cases involving more than one victim. Ferguson didn't issue any holding about what happens when a defendant commits a non-person offense and there's only one um, one other victim involved. Um, so while it. You know, the Court of Appeals read that as an implication of Ferguson. There's nothing in Ferguson that that states that proposition, and and Jones wasn't the issue wasn't before Jones, so Jones didn't even consider the question of whether Ferguson should be extended to situations where there's only one victim present. Um, so for those uh, for those reasons, we ask the court to um, to modify Mr. Alger's sentence by uh, by vacating the second OFP sentence. Thank you, counsel. You have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Mr. Ryan.
Thank you, Your Honor. Court, please the court, counsel. Um, the state's position is that appellant is just plain wrong. And the distinguishment between the cases they cite and the cases that we cite are that in an OFP violation, we're dealing with people. We're dealing with human beings who have suffered domestic violence or who have abused, have not necessarily suffered it themselves in the case of children, but who have witnessed their mother or their father uh, be the victim of domestic violence as well. And they shouldn't have to wait until there's a physical injury, as I laid out in my brief, like a black eye, a gunshot, or a knife stab, or whatever that might be, to have their, their, their legal rights enforced and be considered victims, because they are victims. And if you look at Ferguson and that, the cases cited by the appellant, they tied to bricks and mortar for the most part. Shooting at a house, burning a building, burglarizing a building. Here we're talking about people and the very focus and intent of this legislation is to protect the protected people that uh, are the protected people in the order and prohibit the restricted person from having the contact or violating the order for protection that was there. And the argument that there has to be an intent to physical harm or there actually has to be physical harm ignores the very heart of why we have to have legislation like uh, orders for protection, and then we have to enforce those. Domestic violence is more than the physical broken bones and, and physical injuries that occur. You have emotional harm. You have psychological harm. Counsel, yeah. opposing counsel points to um, our president in Ferguson and says that supports his conclusion. Tell us why he's wrong. Again, it's because of the people. If you look at Ferguson, it says that there has to be harm, and they're looking at the fact that a person is shooting at a building that has people in it. The focus of that particular crime is the shooting at a building. It doesn't have to necessarily have knowledge of a human being. In this instance, the, the restricted person knows full well they cannot have, cannot have contact with the protected person or the protected people. And it doesn't matter if there's one protected person for five orders or five protected person in one order. It's all the same. And so the conduct of the violation is an intentional act by the defendant, not necessarily always intentional, but usually intentional, to violate that OFP and they do it knowingly. And that's the distinguishment between uh, Ferguson and Hodges and all the rest of the cases that the appellant cites. It ignores the non-physical harm that can be occurred. And there's nothing in Ferguson that says it necessarily has to be physical harm, depending upon how you want to read that. And if you look at all of the other cases... Can I just, and I think maybe you're going here, but opposing counsel makes the argument that we have never decided a case up to apply the multiple victim rule where there's either not actual harm or intent to harm as an element of the crime. Is is that correct, or do you know? Not correct. Okay, what you actually, I, in, in which cases? In my, I yeah. cited in my brief, and I'm, a, so, I'm sorry I don't have that just on the tip of my tongue, but this court has held that when a person uh, broke into a store or some kind of a business and they stole money from the business and they stole the money from the lessee on the property where they were playing pull tabs, two different thefts, that the multiple victim rule applied. There was no physical harm. There's no intent for physical harm. There was no intent for contact with a human being. But, but there's harm in the taking of the, I mean, the harm of the crime is the taking of the money, right? Uh, that is harm. And if it's the de any definition of harm you want to, to do, it violates the legal rights, the right to possession of the property. And oftentimes, it's people who have had their homes burglarized, who have had some kind of theft taken from them, particularly seniors, who feel as victimized in my 25 years as a prosecutor, as victimized and sometimes more victimized than people who actually have been involved in a minor assault. I mean, Council, that's the reality of it. Council, um, I'm trying to figure out where the issue is joined here. I mean, the, it seems to me opposing counsel is saying essentially that um, it's all about the elements. And the elements of, a, of the OFP violation crime do not include harm to the victim. And you're saying, I think, it doesn't matter what the elements require. We look at what actually happened. And in an OFP violation, there's harm to the victims. There's all, there, by definition, there's harm to the victims. So the fact that it's not an element 
of the crime doesn't matter for purposes of the multiple victim rule. And I think that's where the issue is, is joined here. So, and do you think the best case for um, it not being a requirement that, that we look at the elements, we don't look at the elements, we look at the actual facts of the crime. You're relying on this, this burglary theft case that you're just talking about, the pull tab case. That's the best case for your position. If I had a case that the court specifically had addressed the issue before the court, I certainly would give it to you, Your Honor, but I don't. But, but the pull tab one is the one that you... I, I use that as an example where it doesn't have to have physical harm. Yeah, okay. And uh, even, the point is not... I don't think the point is whether it's physical harm. It's whether the, the element of the crime has some harm to the, to the victim. And clearly in a theft, there's harm to the... Oh, you admitted that there's harm to the victim. Of course. Um, a person who is an abuser doesn't necessarily have to use physical violence or force to control their person. They create codependency by words, by fear, by withholding resources if they're the breadwinner. And that's part of the very legislative intent is to break that circle of codependency. And I think that in OFP situations, everyone agrees they're a victim, so the question is whether they're a victim for the multiple victim rules. This court, not any of these current members, have identified people on OFPs, as I said in my brief, uh, the protected people as victims. The Court of Appeals, for the purposes of the multiple victim rule, and I cite that in my brief as well, have said it's a no-brainer. They are victims for purposes of the multiple victim rule. I, I submit that it doesn't matter if there's an intent element in the crime. There is the intent element to violate the OFP by the, the restricted person, the defendant, the appellant in this case, and that's enough to invoke the multiple victim rule. And once you do that, I mean, it would, frankly, to use, uh, and not be insulting, but of the legal terminology of it, the absurdity of saying that if I have five protected people in a room, with one or five different orders, and there's an intentional violation of that, I don't have five victims. But if I have five different OFPs, and the defendant says, makes five different phone calls, say, hours apart, I can get five convictions out of that with five sentences, but I can't if they send a single text message to those same five people. The technology we have today didn't exist back in 1979 when the statute was put in place. And as a side note, one of the things that the appellant relies on is that they can be held in contempt of court. If you go back and look at the original statute, that wasn't there. That wasn't added until 1983 that the contempt of court, from my research, shows. And I wish I could bring the language for you, but I didn't have time to dig that deep. And to the extent that we had to add in a contempt of court, if that was added in, and I don't, when it was added in, I don't know why. If that was because back in the 70s, prosecutors weren't doing what they needed to do in these instances, shame on us that we had to go back and make that correction. And hopefully we've made that correction and we're doing better today in protecting vulnerable adults. And I, I, most of the time it's a vulnerable woman and children, but there are some times it's a vulnerable male, so I say vulnerable adults that we're doing a better job of that today. And we should not go backwards simply because the statute doesn't specifically have an intent element in the terms of the language. It's the intent to protect the people. And the answer is yes, they are victims for the multiple victim rules. And then under State v. Munt 920, uh, Northwest 2nd 410, the punishment element of 609035 doesn't apply anymore because the court uh, has determined that the conduct that's concerned about when you have multiple victims doesn't apply anymore. And so then I think the court, the district court, can look to the totality of the circumstances, particularly in an instance where here we have a plea agreement that was proposed and accepted and a district court reviewed it. And so if, if you're going to look at the sanctity of the plea agreements and look at it as a contract like this court has done many, many times, to allow a defendant to enter into this agreement when you have multiple victims, as we have here, would allow that defendant to eviscerate any benefit that the state got. Now, I won't regurgitate the... Well, counsel, let's talk a little bit about the precedent here. We talked a little bit about Ferguson, and then I note in respondent's or an appellant's brief on page 24, he talks about skipping the day as um, noting 
And the reason I raise that case is that he notes in his brief that um, an accomplice after the fact situation, um, and, and we specifically acknowledge it can hurt people in a number of ways, uh, and yet he, he suggests that um, your, the outcome you seek today um, is inconsistent with that decision. How do, you, how do you respond to that? I think there's a big difference, Your Honor, between intentionally violating an order for protection and helping someone hide a gun after the fact, as was in Skip in the day. So if you have no involvement whatsoever in the crime and you're over here on the left-hand side of the podium as I face you, and then on the right-hand side over here, someone comes in and helps someone cover it up, that is just completely distinguishable and they're in different universes and I don't even think the short court should consider skipping the day because I just don't see how it's relevant to the intentional conduct of violating the order for protection. And so I, again, I just think it distinguishes itself on its merits and on the facts of the case. If we do not hold that, if this court does not determine that protected people are victims for purposes of the multiple victim rule. Basically, the state submits we're going backwards, particularly in instances where, as in here, there's a plea agreement, which was proposed and accepted, and in particular in instances where the defendant is the one that proposes a plea agreement, they should not be able to go back and later come back in and say, well, I don't, I don't want that to apply. Now, I'm not arguing about illegal sentences, so this is different than when you have um, an incorrect criminal history score in some of those situations. Once we determine that- But isn't that the defendant's argument here that this is an illegal sentence? And so the plea agreement really isn't relevant. And I, I disagree that it's an illegal sentence. And I mean, if you look at it, the Sentencing Guidelines Commission has said that these are permissive consecutive sentences. The uh, legislature has put this in as a qualified domestic violence conviction for enhancement. Right, but his argument, the defendant's argument, the appellant's argument is that this is an illegal sentence under 609.035. And I disagree with that, and I think that they're wrong. And I think because you have victims, and they are victims, the, the, the focus, again, is not at what happened at a shooting at a building. This is the conduct, the intentional conduct of violating the order for protection and looking at and having interaction with the protected people, which causes harm in and of itself, even if it's not a physical harm. And there is no element that we have to prove intent, and I don't think that there needs to be an element that we have to prove intent. Again, the intent in Ferguson wasn't to, was to shoot at a building. Here the intent is to violate an order for protection and to have contact with a protected person when you know you can't have it. And in this instance, two different protected people. And I think if we don't allow the, and every one of the people that is protected in an OFP or multiple OFPs, they expect and should get the same treatment and the same protection as anybody else. Otherwise, it's going to be disparagement. It's going to be disparaging uh, protection for each of them. Your individual. view is that as a matter of law, there is always a victim in an OFP crime. I agree. I wonder if that isn't too broad of a rule of law. I mean, what if the, the protected person doesn't know that the OFP has been violated? Then they're not afraid. They're, I mean, they have no idea. So part of, I submit that part of the reasoning that the, there is not an intent element in the OFP law is because oftentimes people who are codependent or are abused and have been battered, they go back. I'm not qualified to explain that or attempt to get into a discussion on that. Obviously, I would if I'm asked questions on that, but they go back. And so you had to create a way to break that circle of violence and a way to hold people accountable and hopefully change the abuser's conduct and at the same time create some a safe, nurturing environment so that the person can get on their feet, see why they were being, that, that they weren't in a good place, and then they can put their children in a better place. And I suspect that's the legislative intent behind this particular law. And I disagree that it's the same as some of the other prophylactic laws that appellant talks about that basically are looking more at the administrative administration of justice. This is looking at protecting people, and that distinguishes it, I believe. Now, in instances where uh, the multiple victim rule is invoked, you still have the fallback position because you have to determine whether the consequence unduly exaggerated the criminality of the conduct. 
and that's a district court function. And once, and, and again, I think if it's in a police scenario and we determine there are multiple victims, then I don't think 609035 for the double punishment or the illegal sentence plays in at all. I think it's, again, it's a different avenue and it's a different uh, way to go. An appellant argues that in cases where there is an OFP and then there's a separate assault, that that would give a basis for an enhanced sentence that's an upward departure for discussion purposes on a felony OFP violation. I don't believe that's the law in the state of Minnesota. If I'm already punished on the assault, you can't use that conduct also for an upward departure because now you're into that same double punishment standard or situation that um, typically we don't look at getting into. Um, the other comment, um, and depending upon if that happened in a single, a single course of conduct, um, arguably the next position will be on appeal is that it was a single course of conduct, so you only sentenced for the most serious offense, as in the State v. Jones case, Your Honor, that you cited. Um, and so then all of a sudden you're only getting the one sentence instead of the um, Ferguson shoot at the building plus every other assault conviction that maybe you can get out of it scenario. Well, I think in this case, arguably you could get the OFP, I mean, the difference between Jones would be you could get a sentence for the child on the OFP violation and then an assault conviction for the, or the, the significant other, the woman, right? That's, that's how this would be different than Jones. The discussion in Jones that Parents counsel had with you was only for one victim and tried to distinguish Jones because there only was one victim. So in that instance, then that wouldn't work. In this case, Your Honor, I agree with you. That would be a potentiality. But again, I don't think someone should, I don't think protected people under an OFP should have to be physically abused, should have to suffer more physical injury. I think the emotional, mental, psychological injury is enough to eliminate any intent that has to be there in regards to the elements of the case. And that harm is there every time there's a violation, whether the person acknowledges it, realizes it at the time or not. And I think that it's sufficient so that you should, that they are um, multiple victims in an OFP violation. And again, then the gatekeeper becomes the district court. In addition to that, I mean, if you look at the judicial administration cases, generically speaking, that council wants you to consider, um, they're distinguishable because of the ongoing fear of the abuse or the reprisal. So oftentimes there is the reprisal as well, and that distinguishes the OFP violations, because again, that's one of the things that we're attempting to uh, prevent or to um, address as it occurs. And emotional harm is just as bad as physical harm. Council, I want to go back to you were answering uh, the chief's question, and you you indicated just now that the harm is there even if they don't know about the violation. And I, I I want you to explain that to me again. I mean, how can there how can there be harm if they were unaware of the violation? Their legal right is still their legal rights or their legal protections are still violated, and so it would be more of a legal injury than necessary, the physical, psychological, emotional injury. But oftentimes, even if the... So you're back to, though, the chief's point that, that as a matter of law, your position is that there's always a victim. But again, isn't that, that's a broad rule. Is there any way to, to cabin that, or do so we need to cabin it? In, in, in the instance um, where they don't know about it, they often find out about it later. And so oftentimes the... Uh, restricted person will contact a third party even though the protected person doesn't know about it as a way of trying to communicate or trying to address the person to let them know that you know I can still get at you even if I don't touch you and even if you don't I don't contact you and even if you don't know I'm doing it I can still get at you because now I'm going to go harass your mother because she's not protected and so oftentimes abusers will do that that in and of itself, I think, is somewhat limiting or creates the outer boundaries in regards to uh, every time there's a violation that there is um, a, a victim. The intent of the law, again, is to protect the person and to protect the person's family. And I get that it's a broad rule. I get that it's a broad law. 
But as I put in my brief, just as with child pornography situations where the child is injured every time it's there and whether you possess it or you're the one that you did actually did the filming and you actually did the, um, the distri distribution of it, it's still a crime each and every time. And I think in this instance, it's still a crime each and every time because we need to break the circle of domestic violence in this community, in, in this nation. And if we don't do it, things are going to continue to perpetuate. It's not as if the person doesn't know they can't have the contact. It isn't as if the person somehow just stumbles into um, the contact when they get this order and they're told they can't have- Of course, have the court would have to find that there actually has been a violation. Excuse me? There would have to, the court would find that there, have to find that there was an actual violation. Yes, they would. So it's not just that they are prohibited, it's the court has to find the violation. So it's not just a random um, without any sort of oversight. Correct, and the district court would be the person that has to determine whether it's in a plea or whether it's at the probable cause portion of the district court criminal proceedings that an actual violation occurred. And if there is no violation, and hopefully not very many cases are charged out where there isn't an actual violation that can be proved, then there is an actual violation and it's an intentional violation of the law. And, and I believe that that means you have a victim either in the sense that they found out about it, the emotional, psychological, all of that, or their, their rights, their, their legal rights not to have that violation occur have been violated and makes them a victim. I, don't, I wish I really had a good um, comeback for your question, um, Justice, in that I can say here's your nice, neat back, basket, but if that answer existed, we probably wouldn't be standing here having the discussion today because it would already have been answered at the district court level. Council, what is your response to uh, Mr. McLaughlin's point that the multiple victim rule um, is really just the wrong way to, to get at a, def a defendant's culpability, that there are other ways to, to get at um, when a victim has been harmed, you know, other ways to enhance the sentence, essentially. They focus entirely on the intent to commit physical injury or the occurrence of physical injury. And that's the wrong standard because it isn't the physical injury of the OFP violation, because most of the time there isn't one, that is the issue. The issue is breaking the circle of violence, putting kids in a scenario where they don't have to witness mom and dad beating one another up, or dad beating mom up, dad bad-mouthing mom, uh, the protected person belittling the, excuse me, the restricted person belittling the protected person. There shouldn't have to be physical injury. They ignore the, the psychological, the emotional, all of the harm that meets any definition for injury that you want, and they only want to focus on the actual physical injury, and this court should reject that, at least in the realm of the orders for protection. And going back to the theft case that I mentioned, there was no physical harm there. There was no intent for physical harm, but there was harm because two people, two entities, lost money. And in their brief, there was some comment about, is a person who steals $500 from two people, I'm not quoting it directly, but basically steals money from two people, any more culpable than the individual steals the same amount of money from one person? And the answer is yes. You either had two legal entities, two companies, corporations, or you had two people. Each one of them is a victim. Each one suffered loss because they lost something that was theirs, money. And if you go into the OFP violation, it's the same thing. Each protected person is losing something, whether it be the legal right that the district court determined there was the violation, whether there is the emotional or physical or whatever other harm. And particularly in the instance of a plea agreement where someone's already agreed to do it, I think Munt should be controlling, State v. Munt, and that you're outside of the realm. I mean, even Ferguson said that a defendant is going to be held responsible. Where is it? Uh, a defendant is equally culpable to each victim, and a victim shouldn't have to suffer physical injury, and there shouldn't have to be an intent for physical injury for that to apply. 
And I would submit State v. Edwards, 774 Northwest 2nd 596, basically stands for the same thing. I see I have 10 seconds left. I could try to answer another question. Otherwise, I would ask for the relief that I uh, asked for in my brief. Thank you, Council. Thank you. Uh, Mr. McLaughlin, you have 15 minutes for rebuttal. Um, um, to first deal with this question about the relevance of the guilty plea in this case, um, the, as, as Justice Gildea stated, uh, it's our position that the, the sentence here was illegal because it violated um, 609.035, um, and that if, if this court determines that the multiple victim rule does not apply um, to this OFP offense, it would violate 609035 because um, it would be multiple sentences arising out of a single incident. So this isn't a legal sentence case. Um, and because it's a legal sentence case, it's, it's an argument that a defendant cannot waive by pleading guilty. Um, and uh, we'd ask this court to determine the legality of the sentence and, and modify the sentence by vacating the second OFP. Um, and, and that the, the fact that there, there was a plea agreement is not, um, does not, alter this court's authority to um, to correct an illegal sentence. You do make the argument, though, that the imposition of consecutive sentences here uh, exaggerates the criminality of your client's conduct. And I wonder if the plea agreement is relevant to that question. It's, it, there would be, I mean, it's our position it still wouldn't, would not, it still would not be relevant to the extent that the, um, whether, it, whether the sentence exaggerates criminality is an aspect of whether the multiple victim rule applies. So it's an aspect of whether the sentence is illegal or not. So, um, so regardless of the plea, this court should still conduct an independent analysis um, of whether the sentence would exaggerate criminality to determine whether or not the sentence is legal um, so that and the plea shouldn't, um, shouldn't control that issue. I'd also note that Mr. Alger has served nearly his entire, the entire prison portion of his sentence. He's eligible for release in, in February. So it's likely by the time this court issues the opinion, he'll have completed his prison sentence. So this isn't a scenario where he's, um, he's getting a, a clear windfall um, if this court makes a determination that the sentence is illegal. Um, the respondent um, focused a lot on the argument that an OFP violation causes sort of an inherent harm in every OFP violation. There's a harm to a victim. Um, and we make a couple points about that. First, we're, we, don't, we don't question the necessity of the OFP crime and, and that we, we agree that OFP statute exists because domestic violence cases are difficult because um, witness cooperation um, can be sometimes be challenging for prosecutors. And this crime was specifically crafted in a way that doesn't require victim involvement to establish the crime. And it also doesn't require the defendant to have an intent. And the legislature did that because it wanted to make the crime easier to prove. Um, but an implication of that is, is that under the multi-victim rule analysis of Ferguson, it's the type of crime that can't um, receive enhanced sentencing under the multi-victim rule. Um, there is absolutely nothing limiting a court from enhancing sentences when a defendant commits an OFP violation in a more culpable manner. Um, can, and I, we, can I just ask yep. conceptually, what you're saying about the what Ferguson said is kind of these um, actual injury or intent to, or actual harm or intent to harm. Yep. Is that like defining what a victim versus victimless crime is for purpose of the multiple victim rule? I mean, is that... I'm trying to understand exactly what the argument is. So yes, it's the yeah the argument is is for for purpose of the multiple victim rule, a crime is one inflicted against victims when the elements of the crime either include um, harm to a victim or intent to harm a victim. And and if it doesn't have one of those two things, then it's not a victim crime for purpose of the multiple victim rule. Right. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And just one other follow up: the uh, opposing counsel talked a lot about physical injury and equating that with harm? Are you making that equation in your argument? No, we're not. And, and the, um, the theft case is an example of 
of a non-physical injury that, that still constitutes a type of victim harm and, and therefore um, could qualify for multiple sentences under the multiple victim rule. So we don't, we don't see a requirement in the multiple victim rule that the harm to a victim has to be physical. It could be a, a financial harm as well. Um, and then also related to that a little bit, the, this whole question of the approach that, that um, appellant is advocating wouldn't capture the, the types of um, emotional harm that, that protected parties suffer with, um, often suffer um, relating to OFP violations. It's our position that the, the analysis the district court undertakes when determining whether an upward departure is appropriate is, is flexible enough to consider non-physical harms. Um, so, you know, if determining whether an upward departure is, would be appropriate, a court could look at whether the defendant's conduct in violating the OFP was, was especially culpable because of the types of, um, of indirect or um, emotional harms any of the parties suffered as a result of the, of the violation. So that type of stuff can be considered and should be considered when it makes the defendant's conduct more culpable, but we argue that it should be done through an upward departure analysis rather than through application of the multiple victim rule. Um, and a lot of respondents' argument is that because the conduct in violating OFP uh, often causes these harms, then, then the court should define it as um, an offense afflicted, inflicted against um, against multiple victims. Um, we'd argue that under Ferguson, that approach was expressly rejected. Um, the, the conduct in shooting at an occupied building inherently places individuals at risk of physical harm. It's, it's um, highly probable that whenever someone shoots in an occupied building, people are either gonna be threatened with physical injury or actually injured. Um, but this court held that despite that aspect of of most or all crimes of shooting an occupied building, it still wasn't um, it wasn't an offense inflicted against multiple victims because the elements didn't provide for that. Um, so this court in Ferguson rejected a conduct-based approach and said that you need to look at the elements. If it had followed a conduct-based approach, it would have reached a different result in Ferguson. Counsel, um, I'm not sure I understood your answer to the Chief Justice's question, so let me ask it a different way. Is a consecutive sentence that exaggerates the criminality uh, an illegal sentence under Minnesota Rule of Criminal Procedure 27.09? Our position is yes, it is. And do you have any authority for that? Well, uh, 609035 would be our authority for that. 609035 establishes the general rule um, that uh, multiple when multiple offenses are committed during a single incident, um, the defendant may only receive one sentence. The multiple victim rule is a, a caveat or, or qualification of 609.35, um, but to the extent the multiple victim rule does not apply, 609.035 necessarily applies, and that's what makes uh, multiple sentences illegal in the scenario where, um, where they would exaggerate criminality of the defendant's conduct. So if, if, if the multiple victim rule is not applicable because these sentences would exaggerate conduct, then the case necessarily falls into 609035, and that's what renders the sentence illegal, and that's why it's, it's a, an illegal sentence that can be corrected by a court at, at any time. Um, the, uh, Are you also making that argument as an alternative argument if we reject your 609.035? Claims. I mean, don't you have that argument? Of course, it's an uphill climb because it's an abuse of discretion right. standard. Yes, Your Honor, and, and in this case, um, we do argue that multiple sentences would exaggerate the criminality of, uh, of the conduct that was established through Mr. Alger's guilty plea. Um, the, the complaint didn't allege uh, any harms um, independent harms um, that um, that Mr. Alger inflicted on either of the protected parties during this incident. His testimony at the plea hearing was that he went to the location um, to, to assist the, the protected party in finding a hotel room. Um, in, in this case, though, the, um, the exaggerated sentence actually is tied back to the multiple victim rule because it's an element of the multiple victim rule. It's not, we have a whole separate jurisprudence on whether we're unfairly exaggerating a sentence. Right. 
But here we justified kind of making up this exception 50 years ago because we said we're going to consider as part of that exaggerated in multiple victim circumstances, we're going to consider whether it exaggerates it or not. Mm -hmm. So it really is tied in. It's not a separate thing. It's tied directly into the multiple victim rule, right? Yeah, it's an aspect. It's, I mean, we view the multiple victim rule as a two-prong test, and it's it's the second prong. And it, I mean, it, it operates, I think, to to try to correct any situations where application of the multiple victim rule wouldn't lead to a proportionate sentence. So the entire reason the multiple victim rule was created was out of concern that in some instances, 609035 may result in, in a sentence that would understate the criminality of the defendant's conduct. So the court applied the multiple victim rule to say, well, generally, if, if someone commits separate crimes against more than one person, the defendant's going to be more culpable. So the 609035 shouldn't apply in that scenario, and, and, and multiple sentences should be permissible. But it, it has that second element to sort of as a, as a check on that and, and make sure that, well, if if in the individual case, multiple victim rule doesn't lead to a proportionate sentence, a court can still reject it as part of it and, and find the multiple victim rule inapplicable. So I, I think that that second element is a necessary part of, of tying the multiple victim rule to its purpose, which is achieving a proportionate sentence. So I think I understand now. It's not your contention that one that a um, convicted person can attack at any time under 27.09 the idea that um, he got a consecutive sentence and shouldn't have received a consecutive sentence. No. Okay. Yep. It's limited to this. It has to be a sentence that violates 609.035. Yep. Um, Can I just follow one other, one uh, argument that the state made that I think has some, uh, is, some is compelling or has elements of compellingness, I guess, uh, is this argument that what if there were five different orders for protection? as opposed to constraint contained in one order for protection. Would that, and, and then, or I'll say there was two. So there was individual orders for protection in this case for each person and, the, and then this incident happened. Would that still arising out of a single behavioral incident? So the, it doesn't matter whether there's multiple orders? It's our, yeah, it's our position under, under Ferguson, it wouldn't matter if, if there were multiple orders. And then a single text that was sent to five people or to both of these people, that would be a single incident. But if he sent five, five different letters, those would be arguably not single behavioral incidents, right? Right. And then so we wouldn't even be in the world of multiple victims. Yep. And then multiple sentences could be imposed without violating 609-035 in that, in that scenario. Council, on this question of exaggerating the criminality, whether as part of the multiple victim rule analysis or as a standalone um, argument, have we ever set aside a sentence as exaggerating the criminality when the sentence has been the, the sentence recommended to the court in a plea agreement? Um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not aware of a case, um, but. The court has held that the plea agreement itself isn't a basis for an upward departure. So it's always conducted. It's always but required. But these sentences aren't upward departures. These aren't. No, that's, that's correct. Um, but it's it has some similarities to an upward departure in that the um, in in that it's a it's a I mean it's it's a it's a mechanism that enhances a sentence beyond what would typically be allowed under six hundred nine zero three five. Um, and, and then just sort of returning to, I think, the, what, what's the core of the respondent's argument is that you know, it, would be, it would be a step, it would taking, be taking a step back if this court were to find that the multiple victim rule doesn't apply to um, OFP violations. Um, we just like to reiterate that it's, it's not our position that this conduct is, is not worthy of punishment. It's not our position that more culpable OFP violations deserve greater punishment. Um, but given the way that the legislature crafted the OFP statute and how it consciously avoided any element relating to a victim, um, and given this court's holding in Ferguson that you look at the elements when defining it, um, whether a multiple victim rule applies, and if there isn't victim harm or intent to harm a victim in those elements, it's not subject to the rule. Given those things, the multiple victim rule is the, the wrong um, 
means to enhance a sentence and that courts should use other tools to look at the facts of the individual case and, and when a defendant commits an OFP in an unusually culpable manner, the court should impose uh, a longer sentence. But we'd ask that the court find that the multi-victim rule is, is not an appropriate means to accomplish that result. Thank you, counsel. Thank you. Thanks to both counsel for the help you provided to the court in this case. This matter is submitted. We'll issue an opinion in due course. We're in recess.